Welcome to SEL Radio, a podcast where we explore the intersections of history, philosophy, culture, and language while combating ethnocide and cultivating Eftopia. My name is Luna, and I'm here with Barrett, the founder and philosopher-in-chief of the Sustainable Culture Lab. Hey, thanks for having me. More conversations. <laughs> um, today, and for the next four episodes, assuming we're going to break it down into four episodes, <laughs> we're going to be kind of dissecting the American cycle. And I'm excited to kind of talk through it because I feel like a lot of this conversation is surfacing, but people kind of lack the language to explain what the American cycle is. So this is going to be part one, the founding stage. Barrett, do you want to explain what the American cycle is? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do the whole thing. It's funny because we're going to break it up into four episodes, but you know you got to give the all the information up front. Don't want to bury the lead, I guess. So basically, the American cycle it's four stages that I think America goes through. It's cyclical, and we're we've we're on the second pass of doing the cycle again, and the cycle is. It's not uplifting. It's not a positive cycle. There's there's problems, and the goal is to, if you're aware of the cycle, hopefully we can figure out ways to stop having this same cycle that's destructive and not productive. And so, um, how I see it, and this is a, a the cycle is a clash between ethnocide, which is the destruction of culture and keeping the people, and democracy. And so it's our it's our culture clashing with a political system that at its core can't coexist with that destructive culture. A a democracy tries to treat people as equals and share power in a way that's fair and just. And ethnocide is all about division and not treating people as equals. And so how you try to reconcile these um, is the problem. It creates a cycle. And so at the founding era of America, we tried to have a ethnocidal society with a democracy. So within the democracy, there was slavery and all sorts of undemocratic things baked into it. Clearly, that's not sustainable. There's a next stage is the abolition, where people try to abolish the ethnocidal parts of this, of the society so that we can be more democratic. So abolishing slavery, that's the abolitionist movement, stage two. Stage three is eventually the, the, the collective yearning for democracy prevails. And now we try to reconstruct our society and our government to not have ethnocide at its core. And so the era of reconstruction is the third step. And then the the sad part is that America doesn't thus far hasn't had the will to continue reconstruction. Reconstruction is a rather short era. And what happens after that is it falls apart. And then people try to find ways to bring back ethnocidal structures in a palatable way. And that's perversely called the era of redemption. And then when they succeed in that, the cycle commences anew. And so then there's a new founding era, which would be Jim Crow, a new era of abolition, 
a new era of reconstruction and a new era of redemption. And so that's the cycle, and this is how it works. Where are we now in the second pass of the American cycle? What stage are we at? So we are at a very interesting stage, which is positive and negative in many ways. So I view Obama's presidency as a second iteration of Reconstruction. And Trump's presidency is the second iteration of the Redemption Era, where they undo the progress of Reconstruction, the progress of abolition, and try to create a new founding era a la slavery, Jim Crow. And so the interesting part is that this era of redemption, it may only last four years. Who knows? But the previous one lasted about 20 some odd years. It was like from, from 1877 to the turn of the 20th century was the second era of redemption. So, you know, maybe the progress of America has made it so that it, we, we are less inclined to do redemption uh, a second time. But like we need to know that we are in that stage so that we can break the cycle and continue reconstructing society to be more democratic and less ethnocidal. It is an interesting stage. I kind of wonder if we're about to go into our third iteration then of the American cycle. But I do want to dive deeper into the founding stage because that is the first stage of the American cycle and it's really going to set the scene for the next episodes of the podcast. You already mentioned how the American cycle perpetuates ethnocide and also how America has a very stressed atmosphere of attempting to balance and unite like a very unholy alliance of the inhumanity of ethnocide, as well as like the humanity of democracy. Can you talk more about like how the American cycle is very ethnocidal and how it also undermines democracy while attempting to, to promote a type of democracy that is very humanizing? Right. So say there's a lot in that, but I guess a key thing is if you are doing something, you as an individual or as a collective, or doing something that's bad, you are going to lie to yourself about whether that's bad or not. Like, you are going to articulate some way to say that it like, it's good for you. Like, you may know that it's bad for other people, but you'll say it's good for me, and then you'll probably try to conceal that so that you can continue doing the thing that's good for you at an individual level. Like, that's a very basic component of like human nature. And one of the main ways that we learn to like not do bad things is through recognizing our connection to other people. You know, like this might be like a really trivial example, but like there's always that point for like a lot of guys when they're really, really young where they like a girl and we just were full with, filled with testosterone and you run up and like punch a girl in the shoulder, tell her that you like her. You're not doing something that you think is bad. To you, you're doing something that you think is really, really good. And then society tells you, like, this physical assault is detrimental. This little girl is crying. Here are other ways that you can learn how to be and do be a good person and do things well, you know? And so, like, you learn how to be good by being connected to that person and caring that that little girl 
is like sad now, you know? Um, and so at, for the U.S., slavery without a doubt is just an atrocity. Chattel slavery is, it's, there's no redeeming quality for that. And if you have a society that's committed to doing it, they're going to cultivate language and laws and practices to try to articulate that this is good. And then if democracy is a new fangled type of government structure that's popping up over Europe that people are using to run governments where there's not a king, you know, like you got to really think about the volatility of, of the Western world at this time, the Westernized world where kingdoms were falling apart and they were trying to figure out how can a, a country even exist without a king. And then this democracy idea comes comes into being as like, okay, cool. There's this democracy idea. Now, how do we square democracy with this other thing we're doing that's not democratic that we've convinced ourselves is good despite it being really, really bad and put these two diametrically opposed ideas together. And that's what America did. And if you have the on one side language that says all men are created equal, and then you have within that language, these men weren't created equal and they're three fifths of a person and their democratic power gets allocated to the white male landowners who have the right to vote. Like that is inherently problematic to being democratic where now the people who are democratic in the North that are white male landowners, their representation in the electoral college and representation in the house of representatives is based exclusively on the white men that have the right to vote. But in the South, their representation in the house, their representation in the electoral college is based on the white men who own land plus a number of seats dedicated to the people that they own who give white people more representation. And so trying to find this balance between the humanity of democracy and the inhumanity of ethnocide from the beginning of American society gave ethnocidal Americans a disproportionate influence in the shaping of our society. And that's really, really significant. Like, if you just look at how many of America's first presidents came from Virginia and that didn't come from Pennsylvania, it's it's very, very obvious. And, you know, even even the re reason that our, our nation's capital is in Washington, D.C. and not Pennsylvania, not Philadelphia, it's because they wanted to have something that was on the border between slave owning South and the non slave owning North to show that America as a whole didn't object to slavery. They had to create like this neutral zone. And even then, like, and I might, you know, there's, there's more and more research to look on this. And a lot of the research is concealed, you know, but, um, or, or harder to find than you would like, I guess. But like Virginia didn't give their portion of the land to make Washington DC. Maryland did, but Virginia just didn't. And it's like, I'm pretty sure Virginia didn't, 
because that was valuable land being used by slaves and they didn't want to get rid of that slavery land. And like you can go to Arlington now and you can find old houses that have like slave quarters still in the basement that have been converted into, you know, you know, apartments now and stuff. And that's just right across the river. So I, th- I think it's just really important to understand how trying to balance the like the inhuman with the human doesn't create some sort of sweet equilibrium. It just empowers you know, people to be inhuman. And that's kind of what happens in the founding era, which naturally people want to be human beings. And so there's going to be some sort of rebellion desire to abolish, normalize systemic inhumanity. Let's let's kind of like dive deeper into some of the key players and important things basically that happened. I think you mentioned before in the past basically that whiteness is is constant divisiveness and it's also creating and manifesting imaginary enemies in a lot of ways and we've seen that throughout america's history in terms of like the north versus the south dc being a very physical being a physical manifestation of like the imaginary line right for many previously enslaved folks who would be crossing who would reach DC and would feel, you know, that that was kind of like the physical landmark of which it was crossing from the South into the North. Mm-hmm. Like you said, a neutral zone in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, how about you talk about like some of the key players in the founding stage and any events that like really marked this as kind of like key dates and times for like the founding stage and what happened in both the first and the second iteration. <laughs> so it's it's funny because I think so like we talk about culture and culture is is how a, a mass of people regardless of, you know, class or whatnot structure and interact with each other. And so I think in a weird way, the U.S., since we're very individualistic, wants to hone in on individual players to authenticate large, grandiose ideas. Like if we can prove that Thomas Jefferson or George Washington's a bad person, then that's like the watershed moment that shows that everything is is bad. But it's kind of this desire to like, be myopic so that you can then feel grandiose. But the key component is like, we can talk about thousands of players, little, you know, just the daily workings of like how they went, but like the structure is really, really obvious if you just look at it, you know, and you don't need to get that extra validation of Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or whatever. Like if you watch the movie, if you watch Hamilton, You'll, you'll look at Hamilton differently now. And you're like, huh, yeah, Alexander Hamilton went through like really big lengths to like find common ground with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George Washington, even though like they didn't try to find common ground with him at all. They were plotting and trying to like destroy him every chance they got, but he really, really wanted to like find some partnership with them to keep America together. These people, they are not really that concerned about that. (laughs) You know, like 
that is uh shows the, the the imbalance and you can see that really easily but you know i guess a key person to look at thomas jefferson is just the easiest like this this guy's just the realization that he died in debt and died completely broke and in debt but still in his house it was never like evicted or anything it's like so how was thomas jefferson allowed to be poor and rich at the same time and it's like oh it's because he owned a lot of people like he could always make payments on any sort of a loan because he had a whole field of people that were gonna that are forced to work for him for a life and when he dies the debt collectors can just come and take all those people and that will be a way for him to like repay his loans and it's like huh that's just a fact like he's able and you know one thing that's also fascinating is like a book back then costs almost like what an ipad would cost today so when you see someone that has a mansion and is in debt up to his eyeballs and he has a library filled with iPads, just iPads stacked on top of iPads. You're like, how did he get all of this money? Like, how is he able to be rich and not have to make money? And it's chattel slavery. Not only did he, was he rich, but he, that capacity helped elevate him to the pantheon of American political and social power like that's really really significant to think about and you know that system wasn't something that was like an exclusive privilege of thomas jefferson everybody could do it that's a really big problem and so you know we're talking about the first founding era but if we go to the second founding era that's jim crow the goal of Jim Crow was to return black people to a life as close to slavery as humanly possible. And, you know, but they couldn't use language that openly condoned slavery because it was unconstitutional now because of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment. So they had to come up with language that wasn't overly, overtly racist, but had the the outcome would be racism. So, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson is the best example. Separate but equal was created so that services could be distributed unequally. Like, we all know that that's the point, but it doesn't say that. And so we're, we're now in this weird kind of Orwellian environment where, like, language doesn't mean what it says it means. What it means is what the authoritarian white people who dominate the South say it means. And that will be something different depending on who they're in front of. If they're in front of a court, separate but equal means separate but equal. If they're just going about their daily life, separate but equal means not equal. And you, and in this environment, you have people that are sharecroppers. You, you know, the, the, the prison, America's major prison system started 
popping up around that. You know, you have Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow, which, you know, talks about how we are doing that now. But there's Jim Crow. There's there's Ava DuVernay's movie uh, 13th that talks about how they used not racist language to create racist, oppressive outcomes where people's lives weren't that dissimilar to to how it was in the 1860s and before. The main difference between Jim Crow and uh, slavery, well, there's many differences, so I can't say the main difference. That'd be, that'd be a bit much. But one of the big differences is freedom of movement. Like you couldn't police black movement to the degree that you could before. So, you know, the great migration was allowed to happen where it was known that like a black person's getting in a truck or a car and they're driving someplace else and the law in the South can't prevent them from leaving the state and going someplace else. But during slavery, like if a slave left the just like the property, law enforcement would chase that per that chase that person down and bring them back. You know, that's not that what that's not the case in the twentieth century. And so, you know, I I I look at the Great Migration almost as, you know, I would call it the overground railroad, where like you just you didn't have to like go underground. You just I'm I'm leaving. I have to leave this terror. And that also feeds into a narrative of, of abolishing that founding era where white people in America are trying to have a balance between ethnocide and democracy, but a balance can't happen. And that attempted balance only empowers the ethnocidal, inhumane parts of American society. And I think I think that's quite evident with uh with Jim Crow and uh and the founding era. And I think frankly it's it's quite dangerous nowadays how well, you know, I think it's quite telling that once the civil rights movement happened in the 60s and Jim Crow ended. A conservative movement of uh, jurists and ideologues came about with an ideology of, tr- of interpreting the law exclusively to be an extension of the founder's intent. And it's like, interesting. You know, these people who use flowery language to condone an atrocity there's a movement now where people are trying to use their wisdom to articulate how society should look centuries later that are filled with a whole bunch of people that we know these founders would not consider to be human beings. Inherently problematic. And so, so yeah, like an, another interesting player, I guess, in the founding era would probably be um, Andrew Jackson. He... <laughs> So Andrew Jackson's an interesting one because when Andrew Jackson ran for president the first time, there was essentially like one political party in America, it was just the Democratic Republicans. And they, you know, so for when it came time to run for president, there'd be like four Democratic Republicans running. <laughs> and um, and you could be from Tennessee, you could be from Boston, you'd have completely different ideas and, and, and values, same political party. When Andrew Jackson ran for president, he got the popular vote, but he didn't have the electoral college votes. And who came in second was John Quincy Adams, whose you know dad was also the president. And John Quincy Adams made a, a bargain with Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House at the time, 
to and he was Speaker of the House and also he ran for president and got electoral college votes. And so the Speaker of the House, if back then the rules were if, if there wasn't a um a winner, the Speaker of the House could decide. And so John Quincy Adams and, and Henry Clay got along way better than Andrew Jackson did. And so, you know, John Quincy just said, hey, if you um, give me your electoral college votes and vote for me to become the president, I'll become, I'll let you become secretary of state. And he did it. And Andrew Jackson was furious. And so he left the Democratic Republican Party and made his own party. And they first, they were called the Jacksonian Party. And then they became the Democratic Party because they were a true democracy. And, you know, they, they weren't going to let these, these political elites take their presidency away from them and all that kind of stuff. And he was America's first populist president. But as a populist, that also meant that he was very pro slavery. And one of his big missions was to force out more indigenous people from their land. And so this populist Southern president, you know, not Virginia Southern, but like real, real Southern. He he ran again four years later and, and won. And it's like, I, I mentioned him for that because after, during the era of redemption, when the Southerners had this new narrative of the lost cause to make Confederates and, and, you know, become heroes and to change the reasons for what the Civil War, why it was, they had to pick some national hero. <laughs> and their national hero couldn't be a Confederate at the time, you know? Like, so they picked Andrew Jackson and they they kind of brought him back. Like, he died before the Civil War happened. And it was kind of, kind of like, you know, he's a, he's a president and he was okay. But the South made him a new hero. He was a true Southern populist, real Democrat. But... He's very much, and so you can see the narrative of this, of the, the era of the founding era is trying to be, try to get people who can apologize or make atrocities seem palatable. And those are people that are elevated. And then, you know, America asked these questions of people of color about, you know, what do we think about these people? And there's a hope that we don't say that they're all horrible people. But we also know if we got any of them in a time machine and brought them to the present, they'd be awful people. And so the aspiration should be to make people that are better than those people and not say that those people are the best people. And so, so yeah, I, you know, I, I guess there's more people I could talk about, but it's more of just like the cultural dynamic that shapes everybody, not just the powerful people, but the people at the very bottom of the social ladder. It's interesting that you bring up Andrew Jackson. Like, I can definitely see aspects of how Trump has modeled his own presidency and, and how it repeats itself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, for sure the founding stage was pivotal in shaping the rest of American society as we know it today. And I think that was like a really core foundational argument in Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 project that we can relate anything and everything in modern American society to enslavement. Since, you know, we are at a stage in the American cycle where it's kind of like we're hanging it a little bit, like in between the redemption and the founding stage. And 
knowing that the cycle is cyclic, it's a two-part question. Do you think we're going to move into another ethnocidal founding stage? And if so, like, what do you think is going to take to actually break out of this stage? Is the founding stage ever going to be not ethnocidal? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, the key thing is, if you know, it's it's about probabilities and not necessary possibilities. If if America has behaved in a certain way, it's easy to say X, Y, and Z is probable to happen if we just let things continue to go how they've always gone. And I think having people be aware of just the idea of the American cycle makes it easier for people to say, huh, maybe we should try to change this natural flow that America has been doing for the since the founding of America, if and you know, before the world well, founding of America. So when I started writing about the connections of reconstruction to now, uh, to the president, like that was right when Trump became president. I was like, this is just like the fall of reconstruction. There was no ambiguity about this in my mind. So, you know, if we don't do things differently, yeah, Trump would, you know, keep on how he's going and echo the concepts of of Andrew Jackson and you know like the era of redemption that came out the reconstruction consisted of people looking at the founding era and pulling out the worst people and elevating them to be the best people so that they could create a horrible structure that is sounds palatable and then at some point in the future will wake up and it's without a doubt a nightmare. Like every day is a nightmare. Every day is surreal. Um, I think a key thing to for people to be aware of is that Reconstruction lasted like 12 years. The era of redemption was over two decades. And then the, the results of the era of redemption was Jim Crow. That was about 60 years. So if you look at America... You know, the founding of America was, you know, like end of 18th century, beginning of 1800s. And that lasted, the founding era was like 60 years. Clearly, the era of abolition is like within it. Like they're, they kind of are interspersed. They work together. Uh, not, they don't work together, but they happen like overlappingly. So I think it's just the key thing is to be aware of what's happening. And, you know, the work of SCL and, you know, just everything we do is to make people aware and have the language of just the nature of America so that we can try to be better. Because I think there's a lot of people in America that want to do really good things. I think they want to make a better society. They want to continue the ideas of democracy and, you know, and, and, and enhance that. But if you are always fighting an impediment that you've never named, that you're not even aware is like getting in your way, then you won't be able to like remove it from, you know, hindering you. And that's the key thing. But, you know, when Trump became president, no, I was very concerned that a new era of redemption may have convinced, like may have commenced and we may be staring down a solid 20 years. Maybe, maybe it might not take 20 years because technology and stuff like that. Maybe we're talking uh, a two presidential terms plus, you know, like Pence, you know, and we wake up and 
12 years later, it's just crazy. And it's, it's just democracy in name and nothing else, which is just like what Jim Crow was. So I had that concern and that concern I think has emboldened me to try to really get these ideas fleshed out because I don't, no one wants to live in a place like that. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think there, I, I think the election of Joe Biden. Yeah. And, you know, what's, what's, what happened in November and what happened in Georgia on, you know, Tuesday is indicative of America organically fighting against the air of redemption. But the point isn't to fight against it. It's to actually like win <laughs> and know what you're defeating. Right. So, you know, it's right. like every, everyone, pl- when you play a sport, everyone tries to win. Trying to win doesn't really matter. <laughs> You know, and so, so yeah, we're definitely in the second era of redemption. Now the question is, like, can we stop it? And I think there's a a greater capacity to stop it now than there was in the 1800s. That's the hope, at least. And also, yeah, during Jim Crow, too, we can hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was my last question was whether or not you thought we could kind of break out of this cycle before it begins again and or if there's a possibility for a new cycle in which instead of it, you know, kind of playing with like basically dancing around this like ethnocidal like teeter tottering between like a like further developing and encroaching this ethnocidal foundation in American society, if you think there's an opportunity for it to be more liberating and to be centered on liberation. So yeah, so, do you think it's either another iteration of the American cycle or? So like uh, what happened yesterday and in DC is if we use the language of the cycle, and we continue the language that was created in the 1800s. Like these people are redeemers. Like they are people that are trying to redeem America, which in this cycle and the corrupted language of America, redemption is returning the South to how it was before the Civil War. And, you know, that's returning it to a place where, you know, people of color, the ethnocide exist to be exploited and give power to white people. That's it. The idea of these people existing in an equitable fashion is just a living nightmare to these people. And so they try to redeem it. You can just see America right now. And the fact that black people and Asian people, Latinos, you know, people of color, uh, indigenous people are trying to live as equals and not as subjugated people that just l- exist to give political and financial power and capital to to white people is very problematic to a lot of white people. And that's that extends beyond whether like you're a rich white person or a poor white person, because a lot of rich white, a lot of poor white people view that their livelihood is dependent on the wealth of a rich white person because their job derives from that individual. So, you know, like the factory workers 
in West, you know, in West Virginia, they are very concerned about that rich white guy not being rich anymore because if he stops being rich, the factory might close. So they want to do things to help that person be rich. So, which is like so perverse. Um, but you know, it's these were redeemers trying to take America back. MAGA, make America great again, to a previous, more divided, authoritarian era. There's just no ambiguities to that. That's what they do in, that's what they did to combat Reconstruction. That's what they did during the era of redemption. And that's what they're doing right now in the second iteration of that. You know, I think making sure that people are aware that this is how America operates makes the people who want to do good things more capable of doing good things. And I think it also makes a lot of people who don't realize that they're doing bad things, realize that they're doing bad things. And that's, that's just, that's significant. And so, you know, I think, I think there's the potential to change course so that we don't encounter a third founding era, but you know, you don't, it's not going to be something that occurs by being like passive and just trusting that America will like fix itself. Cause when America fixes itself, it's not beneficial to people of color, <laughs> you know? Yep. Never has been. And it never will. <laughs> well, it could, it could yeah. if you change it. That's the thing. Like if you have the the language and the education we could change it. We could make it a place that's beneficial for people of color. But thus far, the cycle that is uh, that the American cycle, the way that America has functioned has always been a way that is not beneficial for people of color. And, you know, if people of color still live here, which they're going to live here forever, we need to figure out a way to make our society one that's beneficial for people of color, not you know, oppressively beneficial where like it harms other people equitably beneficial, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the and, Yeah. Objectively good. Yeah. 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 Well, I, and I think every time that people of color have tried and have succeeded, you know, things like January 6th happen where white supremacists just storm the Capitol, rage out, attempt to retaliate and attempt a coup even if you want to call it that yes yeah. conduct a lot of violence <laughs> totally and it, that violence is long condoned because at its founding america has a hypocritical identity it's an identity of being equal but then there's another identity of people essentially getting to exist above the law where they get to trump humanity by being inhumane and they get to exist in that way, not only without repercussions, but they get rewarded for it, which is a just very, very troubling. And so, yeah, no, they're going to attack on a building and not be worried that something bad will happen to them. They'll actually be quite confident that something good will happen to them by doing something like barbaric because that's just the nature of our society. And that's what we're witnessing. And I think the more we are aware that that's like the nature of America, the better we will be to 
change that dynamic and make it a more civil place. Like I will say yesterday, the amount of people that I would speak with that were lost for words and a lot of their frustrations and emotions were due to like not knowing how to articulate something that happens all the time, that's cyclical, that you can just like go and check out some history books and say, oh man, something very similar happened before. Like it wasn't at the national scale, it was at the statewide or the, the you know, the countywide scale, but it's basically the same thing. The motivations of reasons are the same. Like if something happens over and over again and you don't recognize it, you're, you have a, a historical perspective. If you're surprised by everything, you're not gonna be able to do anything. And so that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. And so the cycle hopefully helps people like learn more. But uh, but we I can save some and we can focus on the second stage of the cycle, you know, on the next episode. Right. Sound good. Yep. Yeah, that would be great. Which is and the next stage of the cycle is abolition. Abolition. Yep. hundred percent. And so, yep. Second stage is abolition. We'll talk about that on the next episode. And there we go. Awesome. Thanks so much, Barrett. Well, thanks so much, Barrett. This was stage one of the American Cycle, the founding stage. You can follow us on all social media platforms at scl.community. And don't forget to subscribe to SEL's newsletter, The Word, for a weekly dose of something liberating at the top of your week. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we will catch you next time. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us.